Um, well, I'm really delighted to be able to give this talk today, and um, it's really great to see so many people here. So, you know, thanks for coming out on Saturday morning when you could have been in bed or doing something else. It's really, really great. So, um, I'm going to then, I'm not quite sure how long this talk lasts for because, uh, you know, it'll probably take on a shape of its own. But um, I want to start by talking a little bit about the sort of uh, background of the talk and my personal background in coming to this topic of Buddhism and feminism and self-transcendence. So my sort of personal background, really, is that I, um, and I think personal background when we're talking about sort of gender issues and sexuality issues is actually really important because often um, we can sort of map on sort of to certain received ways of being in this kind of area. So my sort of personal background, um, I did sort of come from a pretty traditional background in the area of sort of gender, gender roles. Um, and I left home, as many of us do, when, when I was 18, and I went to university. Um, and I was kind of pretty gender-blind, I think, and I was kind of operating from quite a sort of gender-traditional tradi perspective myself. And then, while I was at university, I sort of discovered, um, I discovered feminism um, in terms of the sort of whole sort of activist dimension to it. And um, although I might be revealing my age a little bit here, I went to university as an undergraduate in 1980, um, so you can kind of do the math, probably. Um, so I, at university, then I discovered I discovered sort of uh, feminist politics, and it was all a, bit, a bit of a new world to me. I kind of had thought about politics very much in the terms of you know party politics and, and that kind of thing. So sort of socialism, which was probably a bit of an, an anathema to the background I came from, was a bit of a, a discovery for me. And also feminism was a bit of a discovery for me. So I started on that path of um, sort of gender awareness, really, through initially beginning... I, I did French, as you might have guessed by now, French and philosophy at university. And I came through... Um, I came through to sort of feminism, through that kind of tradition of French feminist writers. Simone de Beauvoir has been a big figure in my life. Um, I'll say maybe a tiny bit about her at some point. Um, but I also kind of discovered feminist activism. And I was at university at a time when um, there was quite a lot of feminist activism about. It wasn't quite the kind of heyday of second wave feminism and the women's movement in its initial phase. But it was very much a period of, um, of you know, gender politics being really on the agenda. And actually, it wasn't referred to in those days as gender politics. It was sexual politics and feminist politics. So it's kind of interesting, you know, the way these terms evolve. Um, so I began to be a little bit involved in feminist politics. I went to Green and Common. I joined Reclaim the Night marches, which are about women's safety on the streets. I went along to um, feminist discussion groups and so forth. So that's a little bit about my background, really. Um, and I suppose I'll say a little bit more about the location from which I speak in a minute. But I suppose I, I would say that I'm, I do position myself in this talk as a feminist, and I'll, you know, the, the sort of uh, the, that big that big word, um, and I'll locate that a little bit uh, in terms of what I mean by that in, in due course. I want to say a little bit also about my Buddhist practice and, and what drew me to Buddhism um, as a way of contextualising this encounter between Buddhism. And feminism. So I was, um, I was resolutely, um, I don't know if irreligious is the right term, but I was certainly very atheistic from quite an early age. Um, and a configuration of circumstances in my 40s 
uh, drew me to Buddhism as an ethical path. So I was drawn to it as a path of self-transformation and, and radical change. Uh, and I think in terms of my sort of life course so far, up until about 10 years ago, um, I've been very frustrated. I think I'd been sort of simultaneously drawn and also kind of slightly repulsed by, by spiritual practice and religious traditions. And I think as a feminist, as a self-outed, identified feminist and a lesbian, I've been frustrated with the sexism and, and homophobia, what I perceived as that, um, of other spiritual traditions. So that was part of the sort of magnetic draw for me with Buddhism, that um, it seemed less patriarchal as a spiritual path, and it seemed to offer more resources for gender equality. Um, so I want to move on now a little bit and say something about what I mean by the F word, the feminist word. Um, I, teach, uh, I teach young people at the university, and... Uh, it's, it, I find it's, it's quite, it's really important these days to kind of contextualise that word feminism because I suppose in a sense it means just such different things to different people uh, depending on your background um, and it has various meanings in po political culture and popular culture. Sometimes it can be used as a bit of a swear word, it can be a way of pigeonholing people um, and so it does mean different things to different people. So um, I'm using it here in a very broad sense to mean a commitment to bring about change in society which ensures equal possibilities of self-realisation for women and men. So I hope that's a relatively uncontroversial definition of feminism. Of course, yes. Um, uh, so I'm meaning it... Um, to, to, to refer to a commitment to bring about change in society which ensures equal possibilities of self-realisation for women and men, girls and boys. Um, and I'm aware that uh, feminism, it does mean different things to different people, so we might have a sort of sense that feminism as a kind of reformist movement is about social change, um, we might have a perception that feminism is part of the second wave feminism movement that, that uh, kicked off in the UK and beyond from the 19, late 1960s, 17th onwards as a more radical form of politics and, and, uh, and, and political struggle. So I think feminism, self-evidently, is, um, is related to the politics of identity, okay, the political implications of identity. It's, it's related clearly to human rights and clearly related to social justice. And I believe it's also based on an awareness and an analysis of the sexual oppression of women in traditionally patriarchal societies with a view to changing that oppression of women. Okay. So from the place that I stand in terms of my personal history and, and my sort of academic work in this area, I do believe that feminism concerns absolutely everybody. Um, I suppose I want to sort of say that you know, quite, uh, quite emphatically. Um, so I think it's, I, I don't believe that it's just something that concerns women. I think it concerns everybody. Um, so I don't also believe that it's only women's responsibility, although women evidently have a particular implication in, in feminist activity. Um, and 
Drawing on uh, Simone de Beauvoir, who for many is considered to be the kind of foundational thinker of um, what we understand to be modern second wave feminism, based on her text, um, The Second Sex, which was published in France in 1949 and translated in 1953. Um, Beauvoir says that women, men and children suffer from the oppression of girls and women. So that's, that's sort of my sort of sense that feminism is, it's part of this sense that I have that, that feminism concerns absolutely everybody. Of course, people don't agree on how to achieve the changes that, um, that, that feminism might be, might be aiming for. Um, and Beauvoir says that it's quite it's unethical to promote the oppression of any social group in society, you know, whether they're women or whether they're any other historically discriminated group. So for her, and I think for me as a, a feminist, as a Buddhist, uh, sexual politics is an ethical question. Um, so I think that um, even if, um, you know, I've talked about sort of uh, historically uh, patriarchal societies. And I think that um, we might think, some people have argued in recent decades that we live in a post-feminist society. That's a really big question. And it's not, it's not a sort of, um, it's not a sort of uh, an analysis that I particularly share at all. I think that, yes, there are certain aspects of our society in the UK now in Manchester, where, you know, which are much, much more favourable to women's uh, process and progress, um, I still think there's an awful lot to, to do. So um, I think that I approach feminism in that sense as a, sort of, as a sort of patriarchal ideology which has certain consequences in the world. Okay? So I think that even if um, you know, many men these days don't individually oppress women, um, I think it's often the case that a lot of men do still benefit from what's been termed in um, men's studies by Bob Connell as the patriarchal dividend. The patriarchal dividend or, or the kind of slight advantage that you have of being um, a boy or a man in societies that either are overtly patriarchal or traditionally patriarchal. And I think uh, I observe that societies, institutions and organisations do tend to still favour male aspirations and cultures so we can, if we were a sociologist, we might look at the um, labour market and notice sort of vertical segregation. So lot, not lots of women at the top of organisations. There are some, and it's obviously a changing situation. And we might also notice horizontal segregation, that uh, the university where I work, our vice-chancellor is a woman, which is great. And she's a very well-known women scientist, and she's very keen on getting more women into science. You know, so that there's a sort of so there are the sort of uh, vertical segregation in organisations, um, but also there's there's horizontal segregation where women still tend to go down particular paths. It's changing. I don't want to be a gloom and doom merchant. Um, I do believe that that all of this is changing. And then you know we can look at issues around pay and salary. We can look around. Uh, we can look at childcare, domestic work, etc., etc. A lot of these areas are in transition, aren't they? But I think there is still quite a lot to do. And then I think if we look around the world, there is a lot of um, oppression um, and violence against girls and women across the world. And while boys and men do suffer sexual oppression and violence 
it tends still by far to be girls and women who experience it the most. So I think there is a case to be made that feminism is still very, very necessary in this world. So, so a little bit more about my understanding of feminism. So I think that you know, fe- uh, gender role, gender is, 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 um, is something that... Um, and conformity to traditional gender roles is, I think, something that happens both at a conscious level, but it also happens at an unconscious level. And I think both men and women um, can, can tend to conform consciously and unconsciously to patriarchal conditioning and replicate it. So I think that's why it's, it's actually so difficult to change in many ways. And there have been various uh, approaches in different strands of feminism to address both the, the material aspects of women and girls' oppression in society. So you know, very pragmatic aspects such as you know, uh, abortion, um, contraception, um, equal pay, etc., etc. But also other of, often continental feminisms that have sought to really address the unconscious life of gender roles and gender conditioning. Um, and I think it's because gender roles are both conscious and unconscious that they can be very difficult to change and to recognise and to change. So I think it's, it's about having that commitment to really examining our behaviour and, 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 and seeking to change it because we do tend to be creatures of habit. Um, and I think gender is no, is no exception. Um, I want to then say a little bit about, about Buddhism. Um, so, um, for those of you, I, I recognise that there are a lot of people in the, in the room who regularly come to the Buddhist Centre, so um, you'll have to bear with me, maybe. Um, but this is really for, for anybody that is brand new to Buddhism or maybe has come to the Centre for the first time. So I'll say a little bit about some of the kind of basic principles of, of Buddhism. So Buddhism, then, is a, is a non-theistic spiritual path. Um, which teaches us to reach our full human potential or enlightenment by following the Buddha's teaching, teachings of cultivating compassion and wisdom towards all sentient beings. And we do this um, by attempting to eradicate what Buddhism sees as the root poisons of greed, hatred and delusion. So according to Buddhist teachings, all things, including ourselves, are impermanent, so we're in transition. It's not as grim as it sounds. We're in transition. Uh, they have no inherent existence. This is important in terms of gender. And our experience is continually part of a conditioned and co-produced world. So the world is, is changing and is, um, is, is moving all the time. And... We, we bought, we're born, self-evidently. We wouldn't be here otherwise. Uh, we're ageing as we speak, so we'll all be a little bit older by the end of this talk, hopefully in a kind of good way. Um, <laughs> so we're getting older. Uh, we, we, we get ill and, and we die. And that's part of this existential situation that we find, find ourselves in as, as human beings. Um, and that's how it is. So this... Um, and in all of these elements of, of, of our human experience, there are aspects of suffering or dukkha in, uh, for, for Buddhism. And those kind of um, elements of primary suffering, you know, stuff happens to us, um, is something that can't really be fixed because we're part of this big flow of conditions from the Buddhist analysis of the world. So our, 
uh, task if we're wanting to practice a Buddhist path is to work to develop skillful responses to our suffering and to try and live from a more creative and a more contented place. Unfortunately, um, in Buddhism, we have what's known as the, the precepts to guide us, which are, um, which are kind of, uh, sort of, uh, not, they're not rules, but they're guidelines. They're a bit of a roadmap to help us live on the planet in a slightly, hopefully, easier, easier and more contented way. So, in all of that, um, a Buddhist then goes for refuge, or puts their faith in, um, the Buddha, the Dharma is the Buddha's teaching, and the Sangha is spiritual community. So that's what we're working with when we're, we're, we're working um, on the Buddhist spiritual path. So I'm now going to move on to the kinds of questions that I want to talk about, having set out a little bit of the groundwork for the talk. I want to address now the, the, the questions that I want to talk about this morning. I'll just do a quick time check, okay? Um, right. Um, so the questions that I want to look at are to what extent can feminism be considered to be consistent with the Dharma or to be considered to be a right view? Um, in what ways does feminist activism, feminist struggle belong to what the founder of Charatna Buddhism has called the love mode or the power mode? Or maybe it belongs to both, depending on what you're doing. Um, and I also want to talk a little bit about uh, the practice in Charatna Buddhism of single-sex activities and how they might be beneficial for both men and women. And lastly, and this is quite a big ask, but I hope you'll bear with me, what might a dharmic sexual politics look like? Okay. This is not a prescription. It's just a kind of, I'll put it out there and you know, see what you make, about, make of it. What I'm not going to talk about, and I've probably only got about half an hour left, but what I'm not going to talk about, um, and I can point you to some you know, resources if you're interested in following the question, is I'm not going to talk about what the Buddha said about women. So this is not a talk about women in traditional Buddhism. Okay, so if you're a bit disappointed by that, I'm really sorry, but uh, it's a very big topic. I'm also not going to talk really about the position of women in Buddhism generally. And... Another big area that I'm not really going to talk about because it's a huge area in itself, even though it's interwoven often with, with gender issues and gender politics, is the whole question of sexuality. Okay. So I'm going to start with a quote from um, a female bodhisattva. Uh, and a bodhisattva is um, an enlightened being in Buddhism. So I'm going to start with a quote from Tara. One of the things that uh, I particularly appreciate about Buddhist uh, history it's, is it's full of these really amazing female figures and male figures, but it's, it's uh, when I was saying at the beginning of the talk that Buddhism seemed to me to be a little bit more conducive to um, exploring gender issues. Part of that is to do with the kind of position of the sort of iconography and the sort of figures in, in, in Buddhism. So there's a 17th century Tibetan text on how Tara came into being after her, how Tara came into being. So um, after her enlightenment, um, the monks suggested that she take on a male rebirth. And she said, I mean, I suppose it's always a bit dodgy sort of quoting people from the 17th century or, or even earlier. But uh, anyway, um, somebody was there and somebody was paying attention. Um, <laughs> so in this life, so this is what Tara says, in this life, there is no such distinction as male and female. And therefore, attachment to ideas of male and female is quite worthless. 
weak-minded worldlings are always deluded by this. So she tells it how it is. Okay. And then Tara took on a female form throughout her life as a female bodhisattva or enlightened being. So I'm going to just offer a few comments on that quotation. So from the perspective of enlightenment, so uh, a synonym may be, it's difficult to talk about enlightenment because I guess most of us don't really know what it is, but from the perspective of enlightenment, okay, so imagining reaching our full human potential and beyond, gender has no substance, it has no value. So we might begin to see it as part of... Uh, part of our delusion, part of our ignorance, going back to those roots, poisons. We might see it as part of attachment, part of an ego narrative, even though it might seem to have a very compelling, mundane, relative reality. So a central teaching in Buddhism, um, which is connected to this idea of gender not being substantial or inherent or not having any absolute existence, is the teaching in Buddhism that there's no fixed self. So we might begin to see our gender... Um, so, if, so, sorry, so if we see our gender as a fixed part of, of our identity, then it seems to me logically that we might be coming from a place of delusion and attachment. Okay? So we begin to sort of suggest that gender, is, is, you know, gender then is not, not, not a sort of sense of having a fixed sense of self. And yet at an everyday level, gender can seem very real. I think if we, you know, we walk out uh, into Manchester, we can look and observe gender all the time. So we might begin to see it as a filter, as a filter through which we view the world and others. So we might begin to see it as an individual and collective samskara. What that, mean, well, what that word means is a habitual response. So we might begin to see it as an individual and collective habitual response. Now, in staging this kind of conversation between Buddhism and feminism today, I want to um, also talk about what I think Buddhism and feminism have in common. Okay? And then I'll go on, logically, to say what I think they don't have in common. So... Thinking about this conversation between Buddhism and feminism. Um, so I think the first thing that we can observe about this relationship um, is, is around the question of experience. Okay? So back in the 70s and 80s, some of the big uh, slogans which had a political impetus, they weren't just empty slogans of second wave feminism, were... The personal is political. The personal is political. Another well-known slogan was sisterhood is powerful. So personal is political, sisterhood is powerful. The Buddha said, don't believe what I say, test it against your own experience. So both Buddhism and feminism advocate the importance of experience, of personal experience, collective experience, for a collective project. Okay, so that's the first kind of point that I'd suggest to you in terms of setting up these commonalities between Buddhism 
and feminism, this question experience. Going back to our own experiencing, our own experience and testing those ideas against our own experience. Second point is that I think both Buddhism and feminism see suffering in the world. They see suffering in the world and they want to alleviate it. Okay? Now they might, see, uh, they might see slightly different forms of suffering, but they do see suffering in the world and want to alleviate it. I also think that both Buddhism and feminism can raise awareness. They're tools of raising people's awareness, okay? seeing the world differently and enabling us to cultivate freedom, greater and greater freedom and self-realisation. So a key practice for second wave feminism was consciousness raising for women and men. Okay? So I think both that, that consciousness raising aspect, that awareness raising aspect, that cultivation ideally of a greater freedom and self-realisation, I think comes from the fact that both feminism and Buddhism challenge these deep-rooted unconscious habits and harming, self-harming, other-harming behaviours that come from fixed identity roles. Okay? And then last point, um, I'm not saying it's the last thing that Buddhism and feminism ever had in common, but I have limited time. So the last point is that both, I think, Buddhism and fem feminism can challenge uh, power mode behaviours. They can challenge power structures and power-driven behaviours um, which often are aiming to build e uh, ego and fixed self-views and fixed views about the world, whether you're a woman or a man. Now I want to move on then and say, sort of present the slightly flip, flip side of things um, and putting my, my uh, sort of Buddhist spectacles on. I want to sort of talk about some of the kind of difficulties um, or pitfalls of, of feminism for, for Buddhism. Um, and I'll flip it and do it the other way afterwards. So some of the pitfalls of feminism for Buddhism, or some of the tensions between Buddhism and feminism, maybe that's a slightly better way of saying it, is that feminism can seem quite dualistic. It can be quite uh, rooted in sort of quite antagonistic relationships between self and other. And indeed, certain essentialist feminisms, so essentialist feminisms, you know, roughly translated, uh, would argue that there, there is an inherent uh, identity to sort of men and women and particular essential characteristics about being a man in the world or being a woman in the world. So certain essentialist feminisms cultivate uh, an individualism, okay, a very strong sense of personal identity based in enduring sex difference. So I think the danger here, the tension here for Buddhism is that um, this dualistic aspect of um, some feminist struggles can reinforce ego and can reinforce a sort of self-cherishing rather than diminishing it. Now, that's, there's a political reason for that, of course, and that's because... Um, Feminism, like any emancipatory movement, needs a site of struggle. We need to be in a location from which we struggle from. Um, 
So you know, maybe that's the big difference, really, between it being a political movement and needing a site of struggle, a site of political agency, um, which creates tensions with, with Buddhism. I think a, a second sort of tension is that there is a danger of feminism being quite divisive. A danger, I don't think it's inevitable, but I think there's a danger there of it being quite divisive. There's a danger of shaming and blaming, of orthodoxy. Um, there's even a danger of, of hatred towards others. So that it can, it can, I'm not saying it does automatically, but it can cultivate um, aversion. It can cultivate aversion, women's aversion towards men and men's aversion towards women. It can create quite a lot of antagonism, okay? Now, from a Buddhist perspective, that, that's problematic because then we're in the realm of, you know, not really addressing the root poisons of greed, hatred and delusion. Okay? So we have a situation where there's a real danger of cultivating unskillful mental states and behaviour okay? through that dualism and through that danger of divisiveness and the risks of aversion and hatred. Another kind of tension, I think, between Buddhism and feminism is that it can be um, a perceived as a little bit too narrow, ironically. So it could be construed that um, the injustice of conditioned existence, or sangsara, as, as Buddhists would say, um, it could be construed that the injustice of sangsara can be fixed once sexual equality is achieved. Um, and I think there we kind of tumble into that kind of issue of slightly picking and choosing our political issues. And I do think that, um, I think there's lots of examples maybe in, well certainly my experience, I can't speak for your experience, but I think there's also no guarantee that if we flip things over, if we think that society is patriarchal, there's no guarantee that women would use power any differently to men. Okay. Um, working in a large organisation, I notice that power and positions of responsibility change people, or they can change people. Okay. So I think that there is no guarantee, and I think then it's about what, we're, what values are we in service to. So we, I think we can... Uh, yeah, we have no guarantee that women would use power differently to men. And then lastly, um, there's a danger, I think, of feminism being perhaps a fixed view or even a dogma. Okay? And I would say that like Buddhism, feminism, you know, it's an emancipatory project, but it's only a means. It's only a means. And, and then it's a question of how do we agree on the means? Um, so it's a means, not an end, okay? It's, it's, it's a sort of uh, analysis of, of society with a view to changing that society. And then, you know, like Buddhism and the um, metaphor of the raft, we can let it go. But the difficulty is, when's it going to happen? <laughs> when's that, uh, that sort of uh, uh, situation of, of sexual equality and the kind of... Uh, and the, and the gender utopia, when is it going to happen? And so there's a real danger of getting kind of stuck in the dogma. Flipping things over, I want to talk a little bit about the tensions of Buddhism for feminism. 
Okay. So despite uh, many gender-neutral Buddhist teachings and a history of strong, independent women in Buddhism, we've got many in this room, um, Buddhist institutions and Sangha members can still replicate power imbalances uh, of wider society. So there can be a lack of awareness of gender issues. So it can, so Buddhism can, it can seem and indeed sometimes be male-dominated. It can seem male-dominated, it can seem quite white, it can seem quite heterosexist, it can seem quite middle-class. I'm not going to take on all of those issues, but it can seem, you know, from a certain point of view, replicating, that it's replicating quite a traditional set of values. So... It might be, we might see this traditionalism, gender traditionalism, because that's my brief, in terms of who teaches, who occupies positions of responsibility and decision-making. Now, this is going to really vary, of course, um, from tradition to tradition and from situation to situation, but it does happen. So, um, so that's, that's kind of one issue. Yeah? So, you know, where are the women teachers? Where are the women teachers? Where are the women running centres? Where are the women out there? Who are the big teachers in any Buddhist movement? Are they women? Are they men? The second point that I'd like to make is that, and I I did say that this wasn't going to be a talk on traditional Buddhism, so um, so I slightly have to drop this point in and leave you to discover this for yourself if you're interested. But there is also some anti-women material in... Um, in Buddhist teachings that came after the Buddha. So in some uh, Buddhist traditions, women can be construed as occupying a lesser status. So we might think of uh, certain monastic situations where nuns are subordinate to monks, etc. A third point, and this is a point that hit me quite forcibly when I first went on my I went, on a, I went on a weekend retreat, not in throughout the tradition, but I went on a weekend retreat really, really early on in my coming to the Dharma, and um, it was a, a monastic situation. Um, so this is my third point, that sexual politics can be seen as unimportant or kind of just cultural. Okay? And that if we practice hard enough, uh, all inequalities will, will disappear. Now that may be true. That may be true, and I'm, I'm sure that as, as a Buddhist, I have much more that I can do to practice, you know, more concertedly, more devotedly. Um, or maybe we'll, we just won't notice them. If we practice really hard, we won't notice the gender thing anymore, okay? So I suppose uh, what I'm referring to here is a kind of process of discounting the awareness that, that, that sexual politics uh, brings, so it can be quite dismissive of gender issues, that, it, oh, it's a non-issue, or it's, it's so-and-so's problem, it's Dharma Karunya's problem, if only she'd get over this, you know, this gender stuff, you know, it'll all be okay, and, and uh, yeah. 
So it can be quite dismissive. So when I initially had that conversation on that first weekend retreat, I was fascinated by somebody, who'd, who'd, a woman who'd chosen the spiritual life. And I said, oh, we know, what's it like? And how are you doing with the gender stuff? And she was saying, oh, gender, what's that? And, and uh, you know, so it felt to me, I mean, I was a bit gung-ho, I have to say, but um, it felt to me as though it was a little bit dismissive of that it was a non-issue. And I was thinking, well, you know, Get out, look around, you know, look at the world, you know. Um, so I, I, yeah, so I found that quite, quite a sort of unhelpful res- response. And then lastly, uh, talking about sort of pitfalls of, of, or tensions of Buddhism for feminism, uh, like any spiritual path, Buddhism can uh, degenerate into fundamentalist dogma, okay? So in Buddhism we talk about the fetters, the fetters, uh, and one of the fetters that impedes spiritual progress is attachment to rites and rituals. So it can, in our practice, I think we can, um, if we are Buddhist, we can lose that freshness and vitality, okay, in our practice. So it can kind of degenerate into sort of this, you know, sort of going through the motions. Now, why this is relevant to Uh, what I'm saying about gender and feminism, is that we can lose that heartfelt response to the suffering world. Okay? So we can lose that. We can just stop being in the world a little bit and use our Buddhism to sort of, you know, keep it a little bit at bay, okay, through um, resorting to sort of rites and, and, and rituals. And so this is a whole other talk, but hence the importance of socially engaged Buddhism. Okay? And I think gender gender awareness and, and um, yeah, gender, yeah, moving towards sexual, sexual uh, freedom is part of uh, what I would construe as uh, socially engaged Buddhism. I want to say a quick word then about Triratna Buddhism. Um, so I've chosen to practice in, in uh, Triratna, um, which Alokasani very helpfully contextualised at, at the beginning. Um, and like any any sort of setup, it's not perfect. We're in samsara, we're in the conditioned world, we're human beings and we're, you know, we're necessarily you know, who we are. So from my point of view, I think Tiratna you know, isn't perfect like any, any situation, but, but I think from, to my mind there are some key practices and principles that are advantageous to gender equality. Um, and that's one of the reasons that personally I made the decision to practice in this tradition. So I think one of those, um, again, from my point of view, you may not agree with this, and that's fine. Um, but from my point of view, so one of these is that it's neither monastic nor lay. So one of the kind of aspects of Sangharachita, the founder of Taratna Buddhism's vision, was, was um, that it was neither monastic nor lay. So one of the uh, consequences of that is that... Um, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, replicate the kind of historical male dominance of the monastic system. So I think that could be construed as a positive um, in, this, in this sense. Kind of third point I'd like to make is in Triratna, there's an emphasis on developing Sangha as spiritual community. Okay? And I think that's very beneficial because you know, we're actively cultivating Sangha. And uh, Sangharachita talks about Sangha as a sort of rock tumbler, um, where we're kind of, we're like, uh, so the metaphor is we're rocks. And so we're in, we're in this kind of rock tumbler and we're rubbing up against each other all the time and kind of, you know, doing the things that people do to each other. We're kind of, you know, 
forming friendships. We're kind of, you know, we're, we're maybe irritating each other. We're working with each other. And, and it's in that kind of tension of the Sangha and the spiritual community that, that, uh, that we're helping each other on the path, okay? And that we have a community to practice in, that the community can be a great support to practice in. So, from my point of view, I think the idea of Sangha as a spiritual community, the emphasis on Sangha as a spiritual community in Shratna is, is very, very helpful in terms of this kind of broader question of gender. So we can be working on, in these, um, uh, on this kind of issue all, all the time. A fourth point, and I'll say a bit more about this, is the emphasis in Shratna on single-sex activities. So these are um, in uh, classes, single-sex classes, single-sex retreats, there is a women's wing and a men's wing of the movement. And there's also uh, equal ordination for men and women. I have a, a case around my neck, as some other people do in the room, which um, is, is, uh, means that I've been ordained into the uh, uh, Tiratna order. And ordination then is equal ordination for men and women. And women are usually ordained by women, and men are usually ordained by men. So... In theory, women have equal opportunity to take up positions of responsibility in the movement. Another kind of point that I think is important in this particular Buddhist tradition, um, which I think is conducive to gender issues, gender equality, is the vision of Sangharachita's vision of the new society and the true individual. And the idea that commitment is primary and lifestyle is secondary. Okay, so you don't, doesn't, it does matter how you live. Okay, we're trying to lead um, you know, ethical lives if we're practicing. Um, but it's our commitment that is really important. That's driving us. And then lastly, in my experience, and I can only speak from my own experience, Chiratna Buddhism has a commitment to address issues relating to gender and sexuality. Not possibly every, everywhere, all the time, but it, there is, in my experience, there is a broader awareness of these questions. Um, and I would suggest, in a tiny example, that this event being held at all is an, exa- yeah, is an example of, of that. So I'm going to, uh, I've got nine minutes left, I'm keeping to time. So I'm just going to say, I'll run over a little bit, but not too much, okay. So just say a quick word about single-sex activities and benefits. So I said a minute ago that one of the gender, political, conducive elements of Chiratna was this, this um, dimension of single-sex activities. And I, when I first came to Chiratna, I, um, it was interesting because I... Um, I started to go to Buddhism classes and all the way through I had two male teachers and I was really, I found that really, um, really, really, it was really interesting and they were two really excellent teachers and I'm very grateful to them for having answered all my questions. Um, So I kind of had that experience of, of, um, of, of some mixed study and, and then I was in a single-sex study group and, and that was also really, really conducive to my, to my um, process. But I think there are some... I think people have different responses to the single-sex um, activities issue. So I'm going to speak... I, I personally, I think it's a really good thing. So I'm going to speak as an advocate to it, but I, I realise that might be a perspective that isn't shared in the entire room. So I think that... Um, to my mind, um, 
it allows us the opportunity to be more fully, uh, to develop more fully and to be more ourselves. I think this is going to vary according to people's life situation. Um, but it does allow us, if we're meeting in women-only or men-only contexts, it can allow us to be less caught up in fixed gender roles as they are construed uh, in the world. And I do believe that that's true, whether you're heterosexual or gay. I think there are different issues, and that's another talk, but I, I do believe that that's uh, true. So I think there's always the danger of mixed contexts, and I'm not saying that, therefore, I think every, every, sort of, uh, every time we meet together it should be in single-sex context. I think we need a mixture. You know, that seems sensible to me. But I think there's a, always a danger um, of mixed contexts, uh, encouraging women and men to project onto each other according to traditional gender roles. Okay. So what might that look like? Well, it might be, for example, uh, it might involve women holding back from taking the initiative in a mixed group. It might mean women doing the emotional labour in a mixed group. Okay. It might be, it might be, um, it might be that, um, that men step forward too much that they believe, quite understandably, they might believe that they need to be the decision-makers, the initiators. And I sort of go back to my point earlier that I made about gendered behaviour is often unconscious, okay? And that's why it's difficult to to get hold of a little bit. Um, We can, to use a phrase, which I think is a rather nice one from Ratna Prabha, I'm, I'm... I'll give you some uh, sources at the end of the talk that I found really helpful in preparing this talk. According to a phrase by Ratna Prabha, um, we can shrink back, we can shrink back into traditional gender roles without realising in a mixed setting. So we can find ourselves inadvertently mothering or stepping back or stepping forward, withdrawing from communication in response to other men or women. So this is gender as a kind of samskara. I think there's an other sort of benefits to my mind of the single sex principle is it can create a context for single sex friendship and role modelling, um, which I think is very conducive. So I personally have, have really benefited throughout my life, not only in the Buddhist context, but in a work context, etc., from having really uh, good women role models, okay? Women who are further ahead in wherever I thought I might have been going, um, who modelled um, behaviour that I thought, oh, yes, you know, that's, that's, that's who I... Not exactly who I want to be, but they can help you kind of develop those qualities, give you that little bit of confidence in developing qualities. So I think in the single-sex context, whether you're a man or a woman, you can see positive role modelling which is conducive to self-development. Another point which is kind of linked to that, um, and it kind of goes, it's part of this kind of terrain of gender being quite an unconscious as well as conscious process. I think if we've had a difficult relationship with a parent of the same sex, it can be a really powerful marker for us in adult life. Um, and I think if that is our case, and it may well not be, in which case you can ignore this point, but if it is one's experience, I think 
um, it, we can allow ourselves to work on that in a single-sex context in, um, in a very positive way, by developing positive ways of relating to other women, if we're a woman, or, or men, if we're a man. So I think that, um, by way of uh, conclusion to this bit on single sex, I think it can allow assumptions, we, c it, we can allow some of our gender assumptions to fall away. Um, and I think we can also tackle some of our assumptions, if we have them, about what women-only or men-only contexts are like. Um, and we can maybe sort of, you know, have that kind of conversation with ourselves. So I'm just going to... Um, uh, finish by a few points around what I think a Dharmic sexual politics might look like, and it's it's in transition. It's uh, it's uh, you know it's um, in process. So um, it's not obviously in any sense that the, the, it's just a few suggestions. So um, so I think firstly a Dharmic sexual politics um, sexual politics which would be coherent with the Buddhist teachings would be in line with the precepts. Okay. I think that's the first point I would say. Um, so uh, there would be it would be grounded in in a sort of a loving relationship to the other, to other men, other women, in a universal sense, not in a personal sense. Okay. Um, it would also be generous. It would be respectful, and it wouldn't involve what I think can sometimes happen in um, relationships. It wouldn't involve manipulation or any kind of projected aversion. So it would create a kind of situation of equal possibilities of self-realisation for both men and women. This is a wish list, okay? <laughs> there would be equal expectations of each other which are not based on gendered roles. So forget that I'm a woman Forget that you're a man. Let's just do this thing. Yes, let's just practice. Okay. Um, so we're not caught up in a gender identity. We're not caught up in an intoxicated sexual dynamic. Okay, feeling ourselves to be a little bit different if we're working with men or with women. So we can begin to be fully human with each other. And in this, as part of this, I think we'd be. We'd be cultivating positive mental states in relation to ourselves and other women, other men. Okay, so again, it's part of this kind of uh, sexual politics, which would be would, which would be um, working alongside the precepts. Also, kind of some of the kind of areas of of, of you know contention between the genders sometimes around parenting, childcare, ethical sexual behaviour. Um, these are everybody's responsibility. Um, and they're grounded, so they would be grounded in, in the precepts, in wisdom and compassion. And so I do think that it would give the conditions for true individuality to flourish, for Sangha to flourish, as opposed to individualism or group behaviours where um, we're kind of setting up consciously, unconsciously insiders and outsiders. So I think if, if we're practising, if I'm practising effectively as a Buddhist, I'm wanting to look at my gender conditioning. I'm wanting to look at my habits. So I'm, I'm not going to be bypassing it, okay? I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing it. It is an issue. 
And even though I said I wasn't going to talk about sexuality, which is kind of difficult if you're talking about gender, because it, you know, it sort of can go hand in hand. But I also think celibacy, celibacy would seem quite usual. I'm not suggesting that you know, it, that's an individual's choice, but I think celibacy would seem quite usual and not an unusual choice for men or women. So identity wouldn't be so caught up in gender roles and um, the intoxication of sexuality. I've got a quote now, just before I move to four points of conclusion. Thank you for your patience so far. Uh, I've got a quote from um, uh, Maitreyi, who's a senior order member in, uh, in Shiratna. Um, some of you may have heard this before. And she says in a very useful essay that I looked at, among other sources, to prepare this talk, um, she says, from a Buddhist perspective, feminism is clearly not enough. It's only a possible starting point in our efforts to develop true individuality. For while feminism asks us to look at our gender conditioning, Buddhism asks us to look at our conditioning as human beings, at how, poison, at how the poisons of greed, hatred and delusion underpin everything we do and limit us to habitual reactive patterns. While feminism investigates the dichotomy, the polarisation, between men and women, male and female, Buddhism urges us to strive to overcome the dichotomy of self and other. The view of ourselves as being at the centre of the universe, a fixed self separate from other beings. In overcoming this dichotomy, we eventually transcend identification with being either male or female. So in conclusion, feminism, I think to my mind, is, is still necessary in the world. So I'm not saying you know, feminism is not a helpful thing in the world. It's still necessary in the world. But I think the challenge for us, um, if we are wishing to practice the Buddhist path, is to develop a feminism which is compatible with Dharmic values of wisdom and compassion. If we wish to practice as men and women who are committed to supporting each other's spiritual path as self-transcending beings who can attain enlightenment. And I think Maitreya raises this in her essay. It's kind of what kind of change do we really want? What kind of change do we want? Do we want, we might not want any, in which case, fair enough, but um, do we want long-term radical change or do we want a kind of partial sort of action-reaction uh, type of change? So, from a certain point of view, ironically, feminism isn't radical enough since it doesn't offer a means of eradicating the root poisons of greed, hatred and delusion which drive all human beings in a conditioned world. So, last point. I think Buddhism does have the radical potential to achieve the long-term goals of freeing human beings from ego ego-driven greed, hatred and delusion and to offer us a path to reach our whole human potential. And just a quick word about some of the sources. I realise I've covered a very broad uh, area in this talk. Um, so the sources that I've found useful if it's something that you want to pursue yourselves um, in, are firstly a talk by Ratna Prabha on free Buddhist audio, a website of Buddhist resources 
This was a talk from 2011 on, on gender and sexuality. I also found um, uh, uh, an edited book uh, written by women in Triratna called The Moon and Flowers, A Woman's Path to Enlightenment. Some of you may know this. This is edited by Kalyana Vacha, and it's where my Trey's essay on Buddhism and feminism can be found. And that was published in 97 by Windhorse. And then I've also um, found, uh, there's a, recently she, sadly she passed away recently, but Rita M. Gross, who's an American theologian, um, who practices, who, who's a, a practicing um, Buddhist and, and a feminist academic. Her books, Buddhism After Patriarchy and A Garland of Feminist Reflections, were also very helpful to me in preparing this talk. So, um, thank you very much for your attention, um, and uh, bring us to a close. Thank you.